Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Father, thank you for um, another week that we can gather to look at the Old Testament, Lord. We're so thankful for uh, just what we've learned so far in Genesis. And as we dive into Exodus, it's just going to be a great experience. And Lord, I just pray that um, I'm clear tonight that um, I'm able to answer questions and we're just able to dive into your word and, and thank you for your grace and your mercy. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. All right, let's turn to Exodus chapter 3, which is basically where we left off last week. We, I kind of left you hanging. We barely started Exodus. Did I say Exodus 3 or Genesis 3? Exodus 3. And Moses is at the burning bush, and he's on Mount Horeb, which is the same mountain as Mount Sinai. And God says to him, what does God say to him? Tell them who I am sent you. And we realize that this was the, the word Yahweh, which translated in your Bibles is Lord in all caps, Yahweh. It basically means the God who is, the God who is self-existent, uh, God who is the creator, covenant, um, powerful God, Yahweh. And so this term, I am, really has a long history going all the way back to Moses and Exodus. And so the homework I kind of gave you guys was to read those seven I am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Let's talk a little bit about New Testament real quick. In the Gospel of John, John is fond of sevens. There are seven signs in John. There are seven I am statements in John. Um, if you go to Revelation that Sean wrote, there's a lot of sevens. And so you've got the seven I am statements. And really, this is what got Jesus in trouble. And so I'm going to teach you just a little bit of New Testament before we get to back to the Old Testament because I want to trace this whole I, I am. Okay, let me tell you, put a word up here. What is a sign? Okay. It's a symbol. Okay, so like if, if, if we went to, if we were going to go on a trip to Pikes Peak and we were going to hike all the way to Pikes Peak and we got to the base of Pikes Peak and there's a sign that says Pikes Peak straight ahead, is the sign Pikes Peak or is the mountain Pikes Peak? The mountain. What does the sign do? It points to the mountain. So when Jesus performs signs, which John is very, very fond of using the term signs, it's to point to a greater reality. So when Jesus feeds the 5,000, is the feeding of the 5,000, what's the significance? Is it just because people are hungry that he's feeding them? Or is there something deeper going on there? What's the sign of the feeding of the 5,000? It's to point to Jesus as the what? I am the bread of life. So let's look at this very famous sign. We're all very familiar with the feeding of the 5,000, but John 6.35, let's turn to John. This is the first of the I am statements that Jesus makes. And what he's doing here, well, you guys tell me, what's he doing here by, by using specifically the term I am? What's he doing there? 
He's basically equating himself with being God. Okay. Now, some of you asked, I think it was Crystal, you asked the question, did Jesus use the term Yahweh? No, because it's in Greek. Basically, um, it's, the Greek, it's the Greek word ego I me. You don't need to really know that. But ego I me, when Jesus says I am, really the way it's translated in Greek is I, I am. So there's this really like this pause, I, I am the bread of life. And that would have got the attention of, of the people listening if they would have known their Old Testament when God went to Moses and said, I am. So Jesus says in John, what is it, 6.35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then earlier he's talking about how manna came down. From heaven. Yes, Jeff. Spoke Aramaic. When it was when John actually wrote it down, he wrote it in Greek. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's a good question. They spoke. The language they spoke in the New Testament was Aramaic. When the Bible was translated, it was translated into Koine Greek. And so when we go back and read the Greek text, this is, and what we're really left with is not necessarily the spoken word, but the written word of how it was finally translated into the Bible. Good question. Does that clear, does that clear things up? Okay. It was Greek to you? Yeah. Yeah. So I am the bread of life. All right, let's look at the next one. John eight twelve. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So he's saying, I am the light of the world. If you go down to um, chapter 8, verses 58 and 59, this is where Jesus gets into some major hot water because what does he say? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am... So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus himself hid himself and went out of the temple. Why did they want to kill Jesus? Because he's saying even before Abraham was on the scene, I am. Not I was, I am. Okay? Then you've got John ten seven. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door for the sheep. And then down there in verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, my own know me. In John 11, you've got the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. In, in John 11:25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? John 14:6 is probably the most famous I am statement. You should all have this one memorized, hopefully. John 14:6. Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then John 15, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Okay, so when Jesus is using this terminology of I am, he's trying to equate himself with God. Now, there's a very interesting, I don't know how your, how your text translates it, but let's go to Jesus' arrest. And it's very, very interesting. 
If you go down to um, John chapter 18, it's basically Judas is betraying Jesus and they're in the garden and Judas comes to um, basically, you know, betray Jesus with a kiss. Okay, let's look at, um, let's just start with chapter 18, verse 1. This is not necessarily an I am statement, but it's where an I am shows up in a very powerful way. Okay, John 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Who do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. Now mine says, I am he, but literally it's I am. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Judas said to them, when Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. So when Jesus says what? I am, what happens? They fall to the ground because of the power of him saying, I am. Now, whoops, something happened here. Let's go to Revelation. Who wrote Revelation? John. John wrote the Gospel of John. John is fond of the I am statements because John is trying to make a theological point that Jesus is equal to God the Father. Jesus is absolute deity. Jesus is not just the Son of God, but He is God the Son. So let's look at some few more I am statements in Revelation. Revelation 1, 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So Jesus says, I am the beginning and the end. Okay, let's go all the way to the end of the Bible. Revelation 21, 5 through 6. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Okay, let's go to chapter 22. Last chapter of the Bible. Verse 7. Jesus, And behold, Jesus said, this is Jesus, red letter, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Verse 16, Jesus, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And in the very last verses of the Bible, verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. You think there's a theme going on here of the I am. So God, the Father, appears to Moses in the desert and says, Tell the Israelites that I am the God who is, the self-existent God, the God that's not been created, the God that has no beginning, no end, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the God who's going to deliver you. Jesus comes in the New Testament and says, That same God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I am. I am the fulfillment of everything that God is in the flesh. 
Jesus is the fullness of God in bodily form. And so I just wanted to show you how that I am statement links from the Old Testament to the New Testament. All right, let's talk about the ten plagues, okay? Here's the issue. Moses goes back to Egypt and says, you know, Pharaoh, let my people go. And we know the story of the ten plagues, right? Now, I want to pay attention to the last two plagues. First of all, did Israel experience these plagues? Where were they? They were in Goshen. Now, do you remember last week when Joseph and his, when Joseph's brothers came back to Egypt, where did they end up settling? In Goshen, which was a part of Egypt. But for some strange reason, because of God's sovereignty, God's providence, the Israelites did not have to experience these plagues because they were in Goshen. Now, look at chapter 8. Let's go back to Exodus. Exodus 8. 22. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. So God protects the Israelites in Goshen so that they are not a recipient of the, the plagues, which, you know, the plagues are, you know, what's the first plague? Back in chapter... Um, seven, the water turned to blood. The second plague, frogs. Third plague, gnats. Fourth plague, flies. Fifth plague, livestock. Sixth plague, boils. Seventh plague, hail. Eighth plague, locusts. And we'll get to the ninth here in just a moment. Now look at verse 926. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. So God is protecting his people in the midst of these plagues being poured out on Egypt. And these plagues kind of intensify. I mean, you can probably live with some frogs, right? I mean, how many people like, some of you like, like playing with frogs? Gnats, flies, things like that. Yes, Brent? I'd have to go back and look. Yeah. But here's the issue. When you get to the ninth plague, the ninth plague sets up the tenth plague. And the tenth plague is really the Passover. What's the ninth plague? Darkness. Look at chapter 10, verse 21, the ninth plague. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. A darkness to be what? <laughs> Felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. <clears throat> okay, again, they're in Goshen, they're protected. Okay. Darkness before Passover. The ninth plague... Before the what? The tenth plague. Now let's just go to the New Testament because I've got a verse up there. It's from Matthew. 20, or the ninth plague is foreshadowing events in the New Testament. 
Matthew 27, 45 through 46. Now from the sixth hour, there was what? Darkness over the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sikbaktani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So when Jesus is on the cross before he's being sacrificed as the Passover, ultimate Passover lamb, what happens over the land? Darkness. This is not new. This was foreshadowed back in Exodus that there would be darkness before a lamb would be sacrificed on Passover. Yes, Jeff. So is that Aramaic or is that Greek? The lamb I said back then, that's Aramaic. Sometimes, um, yeah, there's some Aramaic expressions that, that, that are used. Um, that's probably one of the most famous places where it's used because when, when Jesus cried out, and, and, and you may have like a little um, footnote in your Bible that maybe at the bottom says this is an Aramaic expression or something like that. I don't know if your, if your Bible has that. But that right there, Lama Lama Alasek Bakhtanai, is Aramaic. Does that make sense? Yeah. We're getting all the languages here. That's, that's good. Okay. So darkness is a foreshadowing of a sacrifice. God set it up in the Old Testament. Darkness before a sacrifice. Now, let's talk about the Passover. At this point, who is protected from the plagues? Israel. Okay. Israel's been protected because they're in Goshen, right? At this point, has any of the plagues affected Pharaoh personally? I mean, maybe he has a a gnat problem, but is is it an issue where he has a problem? Okay. So Pharaoh. Hasn't, has, I mean, he's dealt with some issues, but personally for him, It hasn't hit home to him yet. Okay, so let's talk about the very last plague, if you will. It's not really a plague, but it's a plague on Egypt. It's the Passover. Okay, so let's look at Exodus chapter 12. Very, very crucial passage in the Old Testament because this sets up a type and shadow of Jesus on the cross. It sets up substitutionary atonement. It sets up God's wrath. It talks about all the issues that that relate to what Christ did for us on the cross. So, verse, or chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb, according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lentils in the house in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it. 
with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Okay, so what are the instructions? It's the 10th day of the month. Go get a lamb without blemish or spot. There's a little sharing going on. If you can't afford it, you and your neighbors can go together and get one to, to, to basically feed the family. You put blood on the door frames of the house and on the lentil. Eat roasted meat, bitter herbs, and unleavened bread. Eat in haste, dressed and ready to go. God himself will pass through Egypt and strike down the firstborn of men and animals. Now, let's, let me, let's just talk real quick about this issue. We'll get a little theology going here. What happens if Israel does not put blood on the door? They will incur the plague. This is the first time that they will actually have to experience the plague unlike the other times where they were in Goshen. Okay? So there has to be a provision given to cover sin. Now let me ask you a question. Were the Israelites any more righteous than the Egyptians? Did Israel deserve God's love any more than the Egyptians? At the foot of the cross, if you'd say, or in God's eyes, were the Israelites just as sinful as the Egyptians? Yes. Because of Adam, we looked at a few weeks ago, both Israelites and Egyptians have inherited a sin nature and they need to be atoned for, that sin. What's the one difference between the Egyptians and the Israelites? Does God provide an atonement for the Egyptians? No, God does not provide an atonement for the Egyptians the way He provides an atonement for the Israelites. What must the Israelites do? Put blood. Because God says, when I pass through, the blood will be a sign that you will not be, what? Destroyed. And as a matter of fact, if you go back to Hebrews chapter 11, it's called the destroyer. Some people call it the angel of death. Okay, this, this is God's wrath being poured out on the Egyptians. Now, how is this getting very personal to Pharaoh at this point? Because he has a son. And who's his firstborn son? He's in line for the kingship, okay? So up till now, it may have been a distraction, a nuisance, an annoyance for Pharaoh with these plagues, but it hasn't hit him personally. Okay, so let's keep going and find out what happens. You find out as you keep reading here that this is to be a memorial that's to be kept for generations and generations. We will find out that in some of Israel's darkest days, they forget to celebrate the Passover, which God's saying right here, this is the, the most important festival for you to be, to be celebrating. 
and in later generations they forget to do it. Let's go down to verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that's in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. So don't even be outside. Stay inside your house. Stay inside the protection of your house because you've got to stay in that house because there's blood. I don't have a red marker here, but there's blood. It'd be like, okay, there's blood over the lintel and doorpost of our house, of our tent or whatever. We're not even to go outside just to look and see, you know, curiosity. We need to stay in the protection of what God has provided, the protection of the blood over the, the lintel and the doorpost. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 23, For the Lord, the I Am... Yahweh will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their head and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Okay, so they're obedient. Moses says, use this as a memorial. And when your kids say, what's this whole business with blood on the doorpost? Moses says, this is a reminder that God passed you over because there was blood, but he destroyed those that did not have blood. Okay, now let's see how it plays out. Verse 29, at midnight, the Lord, okay, got it, got it, got to struggle with this. The Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone and bless me also. All right, think about this for a moment. There was a great cry in Egypt. A midnight cry. Think about what would happen. Think about the shriek, the shrieks that would be coming in the night when people woke up and found out that their firstborn children and animals were struck dead. Okay, this is God's wrath. Now, lest we think that this is somehow God being a meanie, do any of us deserve to be alive? Do any of us deserve God's grace? Does God have the right to wipe people out? I mean, we're all sitting here shaking our heads like, yeah, we believe that, but I mean, we cognitively believe that, but sometimes in our heart it's hard to, to, to realize that God has the sovereign right to execute judgment. 
God could have executed sovereign judgment and wrath upon the Israelites. He had every right to do that. But what's the one difference between the Israelites and the Egyptians? What's the one difference? Well, they're chosen, yes. There was a provision. There was a blood. There was a, there was a blood provision in a sacrificial substitute that God gave to Israel as a way to cover or pass over their sin. You guys ever heard of Yom Kippur? What's Yom Kippur? It's the Day of Atonement. Kippur, it's really kufer, means to cover. So this Old Testament idea of forgiveness, atonement, substitutionary atonement, really means that God covers. God covers. And He does that through a provision of a sacrificial substitute dying in the place of the Israelites. And the midnight, and so here's the issue today. Okay, one of these days, we don't know when it's going to happen, God in His wrath is going to what? He's going to execute justice upon the world. If you do not have, if you have not trusted in the blood provision of the sacrificial sub- substitute to cover your sins, and you're in that covering, if you will, What's your fate? It's a whole lot worse than having your firstborn die. It's, it's eternity in hell. And so you see here the wrath of God and the grace of God and the provision of God in a blood sacrifice. You go to the New Testament, and let me just ask you a question. When John the Baptist sees Jesus walking down the road, what's the first thing John the Baptist says? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Paul says that Jesus himself is our Passover lamb. Peter says he's like a lamb without blemish. Okay? So the Passover is a major, major picture. It's a typology again, if you will. That word typology, a type, a shadow, a picture of God's wrath being poured out and the provision through the blood sacrifice of a substitutionary atonement for his people so they can escape his wrath in the Passover. Any questions on the Passover? Okay. How much time was there between the ten plagues? You know, sometimes I have to go back and read it more closely. Um, we really don't know. Elijah just says, then the Lord said, then the Lord said. So I don't know. Probably enough for them to feel it, to, for it to make an impact. to where. And here's the other issue, too. We, we don't have time to deal with the whole issue of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, but, but what happened to Pharaoh? His heart was hardened. And God hardened his heart before he hardened it. So I'll let you deal with that one. But... Um, in the midst of even all these plagues, Pharaoh was, was um, not willing to let them go, go worship. So to answer your question, I don't really know how much time is, it lasted between those, but probably enough for it to, um, to make an impact where people got annoyed or bothered or mad. 
Okay, so you've got what comes next. See, the Passover is so closely tied with what we would actually call the Exodus. Now, you guys remember, what does Exodus mean? The exit, <laughs> the leaving, the departure. Okay? They can't leave until God has provided the sacrificial substitute. God in His grace has got to provide the substitute. God in His grace has got to provide the, 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 the atonement before there is the, the leaving, okay? So let's, let's think about this in terms of us. Were we there at the cross over 2,000 years ago? Anybody there? Okay, hopefully not. But when were you saved? Trick question. <laughs> Depends on how you view so- Without getting into a whole discussion of it, before the foundation of the earth, God chose a people to be saved. So in eternity past, God the Father chose a people, a great number of people, a people as numerous as the stars of the sea and the sand on the seashores, a great multitude. In time, Christ the Son died on that cross. Now let me ask you a question. Did Jesus, when he was on the cross, cry out, It is hypothetical. (laughs) It is almost done. What did he cry out? It is finished. What is finished? It. Okay. What? <laughs> Actually, and here's another. And here's another word. It's tetelestai. Tetelestai was what he cried out. Whether it was in Aramaic or Greek, it was the translation is in Greek. <laughs> tetelestai means paid in full. Now, let me just teach you a little bit of Greek here. I know we're going to be jumping back and forth between, but it's in what's called the perfect tense in the original language. We really don't have a perfect tense in English. Let me tell you what the perfect tense is, because sometimes on Sunday mornings I'll, I'll mention a perfect tense verb. Perfect tense means this. It's the best way I can explain it. An action came to a completion in the past, but it has ongoing results that stand completed in the present and will always endure into the future. So you could basically say it was a once and for all payment in full that happened on the cross, but it continues to be paid in full to this day for those whom Christ died. Does that, does that make sense when he, when he cried out, it is finished, okay? Now, this all happened before you came on the scene. But the Holy Spirit did what? He caused you to be born again. He regenerated your heart. He's the one that caused your eyes to be open to your sin. He brought that conviction. And it was then that you repented and believed. And so in a sense, you know, salvation is this big, big term. Like, when were you saved? That's probably not the best way to say it. Salvation has a past tense. Well, I was in God's mind before the foundation of the world. I was there when Jesus died on the cross. But, and then there was the moment that I trusted Christ when the Holy Spirit caused me to be born again. But I'm continuing to be saved right now because of the grace of God. And one day I will be saved because how many of us here are in heaven and have our new glorified bodies? 
None of us. So there's a past, a present, and a future sense of salvation. But in the Old Testament, you see that the sacrifice comes before the deliverance. And that's the same thing with us. The sacrifice of Christ comes first, and then through the power of the gospel, he liberates us to new life. Okay? So let's talk about the Exodus, the Red Sea crossing. Let's go to chapter 14. They get out, and they basically pillage, not pillage, they, they plunder the Egyptians. And at first, what? Yeah, they basically, they just kind of hand it over to them. They're, they're so scared. They're scared at first, and then Pharaoh gets mad. It's, it's, it's fear at first, and then it turns to anger. Now, let's go to chapter 14. This is the crossing of the Red Sea. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi Harathoth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Now, if you do an annual Bible reading, and hopefully you do that, one thing you will see over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament, especially when you get the prophets, is God will continually say what? I am the Lord. I'm doing this so people will know I am the Lord. Now, we look at that and think, is God an egomaniac where he just always wants people to know I am the Lord? Why does God have the right to keep wanting people to know he's the Lord? Does God have a, you know, an insecurity complex? No, he's God. But God's mo- what is God most concerned about? God. <laughs> we're at, first, at first glance, we're, about, we're, we're inclined to say God's most concerned with us. But really, God's most concerned with God and His glory. And He wants everyone to know that He is the Lord. Now, those blessings flow to us in salvation. But all throughout the Scriptures, God does things. God does miracles. God does these things so that people will say, He's the Lord. So let me ask you a question. As a family, as an individual, as a church, what are you asking God to do that only God can do so that when he does it, only God gets the credit? Because there's a lot of stuff we can do, right? That we can look back and say, look what we've done and look how we can get the credit. Can I just camp out real quick here on something? Okay. As a church, we can do a lot of things in our flesh, can't we? have happen in music, have great programs, um, have all this stuff that we can manufacture in our own cleverness. And we could probably do really good at it because you get enough creative people, you get enough marketing, you get enough, um, you know, uh, business mentality, you get enough of that in a church where people get together and you can create something that, that's very, very, quote, unquote, effective in the world. But is that something that God did? question you got to ask i'm just concerned it's interesting a chinese christian came to america and he said it's amazing how much you guys in churches in america do can do without god it's amazing how much you can do without god we're looking at our buildings and all of our programs and everything and said man you guys can do a lot without god now that's a scary that's a scary place to be but god all throughout the old testament and the new testament wants people to know i am the lord 
It's me that's done this. I'm doing great and mighty things. And so that's what he says here. He says, I want the Egyptians to know that I'm the Lord. This is why I'm doing it. I'm hardening Pharaoh's heart. I'm delivering you because I want those Egyptians to stand up and notice, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Verse 5, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we've done that we've let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariots and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were, gathering, were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Harahoth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them And they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Okay, foreshadowing here. It's the first time they complain against Moses. You've just brought us out here to die because, you know, weren't there not enough graves back there that we're just going to die out here in the sea, in the desert? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the what? Salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. That's an amazing statement there. That's the key verse, verse 14. Whoops, let me keep going here. They're afraid. And what does Moses say? You just have to be quiet. God's going to fight for you. God's going to come through. God's going to win the victory. You will see the salvation of your God. All you need to do is just fear not and be silent. And then verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. How many times does God say glory there? I'm going to get the glory. I am the Lord. There's no mistaking about who's in charge here. Pharaoh thinks he's in charge. He's the top dog in the land. He's not. I am the Lord. I am sovereign over all. Now, we know the rest of the story, right? You've seen the movie. No. The, the sea parts, they go through, and then the Egyptians are drowned. Their chariots. Now, when I was at a liberal college in high, in, in high school, yeah, I was in college in high school. When I was a liberal, a liberal college my freshman year, um, I was in an Old Testament class. And this was a Baptist college that had begun to get very, very liberal in their theology. And I remember sitting in class, learning about all this stuff in the Old Testament, and the professor stood up and said, it really wasn't a Red Sea. It was called the Sea of Reeds. And when you guys think of Sea of Reeds, what do you think of? Like little grassy marshland. So basically what he was saying is like, this really wasn't a miracle. The Red Sea didn't really part. 
It was kind of like they just walked across the marshlands. And then one real smart alecky kid stood up, and I'm so glad he said it, and he said, that's really interesting, Professor. It even makes it more of a miracle. Because if it was just a little marshy land, then God caused all the chariots and all the Egyptians to be drowned. So it's a greater miracle. And the professor just stood there and said, hmm. <laughs> you know. So yes, it was a literal crossing of the Red Sea, a literal drowning in the Red Sea. Again, God's judgment through salvation. You see the words there. What words do we see repeated, repeated there? You will see the salvation and I will get what? Glory. So who gets glory in salvation? God gets glory in salvation. Can we ever say when we get to heaven, I crossed myself into God's good graces and I got there on my own? We can't be able to boast. It's, it's got to be God alone giving us glory. I mean, God alone getting the glory in our salvation. Then you've got the song of Moses. They get across the Red Sea, and then there's the song of Moses, which is really, when it says a song of Moses, this is really what? It's a psalm. Anytime there are songs, usually in the Old Testament, it's a psalm. So here, sometimes psalms show up not in the psalms. And here's in a situation where a psalm shows up not in the psalms. It's a song or a psalm of Moses. Now, remember what I said were the three metaphors? The three metaphors in the book of Exodus. You've got the hand of the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me, the word of the Lord. And... We'll put home or dwelling. And the first part of Exodus all deals with the hand of the Lord, God's mighty hand of salvation. Well, let's look at 15.6 and see how this plays out. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Go down to verse 12. You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. This is a motif in the Hebrew, and you'll see it all throughout the Old Testament, the right hand of the Lord, the strong hand of the Lord, the powerful arm of the Lord. And so when the Bible talks about the arm of the Lord, it doesn't mean you know, God's literal arm. It's, it's a metaphor for power, for salvation, for deliverance. And so every time, especially when you go back to the Psalms, when, you, when it talks about the hand of the Lord... That should clue you into the Exodus. So when you're reading things later on in the Old Testament and the psalmist or David or somebody later on in one of the Old Testament books talks about the hand of the Lord, it should trigger in your mind, oh, he's talking probably about the Exodus. Not, not, not just only about the Exodus, but, but that's where his mind is going towards, the, the right hand of the Lord working salvation in the Red Sea crossing. Okay, a holy nation, the holy nation. Let's look at Exodus 19. Because God, I mean, we could go through a lot in Exodus. I mean, there's the bread, the manna from heaven, the water from the rock. There's Jethro's advice to, to Moses. There's too many people to take care of, divide it up and have, have different helpers and, and things. But basically... In chapter 19, 
Israel gets to the base of Mount Sinai. Okay, so we're shifting from the hand of God to the word of God or to the law of God. Hand equals salvation. Word equals law. Home dwelling, we can basically say that's the tabernacle. Okay, but in chapter 19, God is going to set apart and say some things about this people. So let's look at Exodus 19. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day when they came into the wilderness of Sinai, they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called out to him of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, here's another metaphor. What does he say there? Eagles' wings. I bore you on eagles' wings. There's two ways you can look at that. One is you've got this major thing where God comes in and swoops you out of a situation and, and flies you into, into freedom on eagle's wings. The other thing is, is to think about the big wings of an eagle giving protection and covering. So either it's protection and covering or it's deliverance. But this whole eagle's wings is another way of saying you know, it's very similar to the right hand of the Lord. God delivered you by his right hand. He delivered you on eagle's wings. God came in power. But let's just keep going here. Verse 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Okay, what words does he use there? Treasured possession, a kingdom of what? Priest a special people, a a holy nation. Okay, let's go to the New Testament. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. Now, who's God talking to in the Old Testament? Who's he talking to right here? Israel. Shift to 1 Peter. Who's Peter talking to? Gentiles which is what? What's a Gentile? A non-Jew. Most of us in this room are probably all Gentiles, unless there's some of you that have Jewish ethnicity that I don't know about. But we're, He's speaking to Gentiles. But what, is, what does Peter say about us as believers in Christ, Gentiles? You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What has Peter just done? He's taken all the descriptions that were given to Israel in the wilderness and he's applied them to us as the church or us as Christians. And basically he's saying now, you believers are the ultimate fulfillment of God's original plan for Israel. You believers are the treasured possession. You are the holy nation. You are his own possession. And what's the purpose of all that? What's our ultimate purpose? That you may what? Proclaim the excellencies. 
It's for, glorify, it's for glorying God, glorifying God, worshiping God. So whether you know it or not, you are, as the King James would say, a peculiar, a peculiar people. And peculiar doesn't mean like you're weird. It just means you're treasured. Does that, do you ever stop and think about the implications of that? The value that we as the church have in God's eyes, not because we earn it or deserve it, but because of God's grace, He has set us apart and said, you are my chosen people, you are my treasured possession, you are a holy nation. If we really believe that, do you think that would affect the way that we live together as a body? All right, let's look, let's look at the Ten Commandments. We can't not go through Exodus without looking at the Decalogue. Anybody want to know what the Decalogue is? The Decalogue just means what? What's Deca? Ten. Anybody know what Log is? Ten words. You're right. Logos. The Ten Words, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. Now, here's the trick question. I always get people on this. How do the Ten Commandments start? How do we normally start the Ten Commandments? How do we normally, when we, when we talk about the Ten Commandments, what do we normally start with? Thou shalt not have no other gods before. That's the first of the commandments, but how do the Ten Commandments start? Let's look at it. Look at verse 20. I mean, chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So how do the Ten Commandments start? With law or gospel? It starts with gospel, right? What is God saying? I am the one who saved you. I am the one who brought you out of slavery. So before we even start talking about the Ten Commandments, we've got to put this in light of the fact that God is the one who initiated our salvation. He saved us. And so the Bible has a distinction between law and gospel. And if we get these confused, it's going to cause a lot of problems. I'll also use another term here. This is more New Testament. Okay, this, this is not on your handout, but under, under law, just the word imperative, under gospel, the word indic, indicative. Indicative. Okay, so you guys, and the reason we call these indicatives and imperatives is because of the Greek tense of the verb. But the Greek tense of the verb actually clues us into the theology of law and gospel. Now, you guys may not know these categories exactly how to articulate them, but you guys tell me, what is gospel? Okay, good news. Is the gospel something you're supposed to do? Are you, can you do the gospel? It's something you're to what? Believe, accept, receive. Okay? The indicative tense in the Greek language basically is, is a state of fact or a state of being. In other words, the indicative talks about what God has done and who we are in Christ. Okay? 
So how did the Ten Commandments start? With gospel. Does it tell us to do anything first? What's the first statement there? I am the Lord who brought you out of slavery. This is a statement of fact. This is the good news that I have delivered you. This is what God has done for you. And who are, who are the Israelites? They're no longer what? Slaves. They've been freed. They're a treasured people. They're God's people now. Okay. What is law? Okay. Any command in Scripture that requires us to do something. The, and actually, these aren't tenses. They're, they're moods. I'm sorry. That doesn't make sense to you if you don't know Greek. They're, they're not tenses. They're moods. The indicative mood and the imperative mood. The tenses are like present or whatever. Um, the imperative mood is a mood of command. So let me ask you a question. Are there commands in both the Old and New Testament? Yes. Are we to obey those commands? Okay. Which comes first, the imperative or the indicative for the Christian? What? The indicative. Let me give you a perfect example. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians. And then we'll come back to Exodus. This is really, really important and the reason why I harp on this so much is because if you confuse these two categories, you end up not really being truly, I guess I'd say, I wouldn't say being truly Christian, but you don't fully understand how to live the Christian life and what God has done for you. I'm not going to go through the whole book of Ephesians, obviously. Um, I preached on this a few years ago, but chapters 1 through 3 all talk about what God has done for us in Christ. He chose us. He redeemed us. He blessed us. He gave us the Holy Spirit. He made us alive. All the things that God has done, it talks about who we are in Christ. Okay? Chapters 1 through 3. And this often happens in Paul's writings. Look at chapter 4. Somebody tell me, how does chapter 4 start? Therefore. So you've got to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? What is a okay? What is it there for? It, it's a it's a hinge. It's looking back at what's behind it and launching you forward. Okay, chapter four through six of Ephesians, starting with that. Therefore, Paul goes into the mood of command and starts telling us all the things that we're supposed to do. Husbands love your wives. Wives love you know love your husbands. Um, walk in the life. Uh, don't gossip, uh, don't be angry, children obey your parents. The whole rest of Ephesians is, we would call law or commands. Don't be afraid of that word law. It just means a command. What comes first? What God has done for us in the gospel and who we are in Christ. Therefore, in light of that, then we can what? Obey. What happens if you switch these two around and start with the imperative? or start with law before gospel? What do you tell people? Maybe you've been under this type of preaching where a pastor stands up and says, don't do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, and gives you a whole list of rules to do. And what do you lack? The power, the grace, the understanding of what God has done for you. And it leads to two different things. One is, and I, one is pride. Okay, the pastor's given me a list of things to do. I can go out and do it. I'm good. I can do it. Or it leads to despair or guilt. 
There's no way I can do that. I'm going to struggle. I'm gonna, there's no way I can do that. Thanks, Pastor, for telling me to go out and do all these things. Now, are we saying don't do those things? Are we saying don't, you know, husbands don't ever love your wives. Children don't ever, I mean, those commands are there. But we've got to get the cart before the horse. The gospel comes before the law because the gospel gives us the power and the ability to actually obey. And a lot of preaching and teaching out there doesn't start with the gospel. It just tells you what you need to do. Give me the five lists of things I've got to do and I'll be okay. And what you've basically done is you've created a legalist. You've created a moralist that can go out and think they can do these things without the power of the gospel. And either people are going to get prideful or they're going to get despair and they're going to end up getting mad at God or they're going to end up being Pharisees. Does that make sense? So you've got to start with the gospel. The gospel fuels the command. And that's a pattern we see when we go back to Exodus chapter 20. God is saying to his people, I've chosen you, I've delivered you, you're my treasured possession. I've saved you. I've given you grace. This is who you are in me. Now, here's the Ten Commandments. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay, here's the next question. As believers, believers, <laughs> trick question there, what is our relationship to the law? Capital L. What's our relationship to the Ten Commandments, to the, to the Old Testament law? What's our relationship to it? Well, let me give you three types of law, and then I'm going to give you the three uses of the law, okay? The three types of law I forgot to put in your sheet there, but I will write these up here. And this is real important when we start looking at the Old Testament There's three types of law in the Old Testament. There's ceremonial, there's civil, and there's moral. Okay, ceremonial law would be like the different types of washings. Make sure you clean your house of mildew. <laughs> Make sure that you're purified. Okay, there, there are all the types of like the washings, the ceremonial things that you needed to do in order to worship as the people of Israel. Okay, civil law. You know, your, 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 your uh, ox cart goes out of control and you run around the quarter and you hit a man and you, and you, you commit involuntary manslaughter that that person needs to be stoned um, or put out of camp or cities of refuge. It's the civil law of how the nation of Israel is to be governed. Okay? Moral law are those laws that transcend culture, that transcend time, that are binding on us today. Now, here's my personal belief. When you look at the nation of Israel, this was what we would call a theocracy. What's a theocracy? It's a society where God is king. There's only been one quote-unquote Christian nation in the world, Israel, with God as their king. In a theocracy where God is your king and God sets the laws and God does everything, which is not around today, <clears throat> you can have ceremonial law and you can have civil law. But now that, that you don't have Israel in the Old Testament as a nation anymore with God as their king, are the ceremony and civil laws binding upon us anymore? Did Jesus ever talk about, when he came, did he say anything about like washing yourself before you, what, before you worship or things like that? 
I mean, he basically, Mark 7, said it's not the outside that's dirty, it's what's from the inside. I mean, he basically took everything and said it's all internal. So my personal belief is now these are helpful to understand the Old Testament, but really ceremony and civil law are not applicable to Christians because we're not under theocracy, but the moral law is, the Ten Commandments. Yes? Yes, yeah, there's civil laws that are part of what the government has set up, but it's not prescribed in like when you read Leviticus and Deuteronomy that every Christian is bad. Like if we're under, if we're still under the, uh, if we're still under the ceremonial law, then most of us need to um, have kosher laws, and we need to go out and sacrifice a lamb in our backyards and make sure that we have the, you know, the washing basin and all this kind of stuff, which which Christ came and fulfilled all that. As we'll see. <clears throat> well, well, there's civil laws that our go- that our government has that are emulating the Old Testament laws, but we're bound to the laws of our nation because America doesn't have the laws of the Old Testament as their civil law. Does that make sense? But let's talk about the so so right now. Jesus did, he talked about, Jesus did mention all the Ten Commandments in, in the New Testament in some way or the other. So somehow the moral law is still binding upon us. So we've got to ask the question, what's the purpose of the Ten Commandments? Why are they there? And there are three, there are three uses of the law, if you will, of why the, the moral law is there. Here's the first use. This comes from Calvin. It doesn't come from me. It comes from John Calvin. Um, to curb, well, John Calvin and the, and, the, and, the, and the magisterial reformers kind of formulated this, but number one, to curb anarchy and violence and to basically make society work. Why, do we have the ten, why did God institute the Ten Commandments? So there wouldn't be anarchy in the world. Okay, most cultures operate under thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not, you know, all these things. So the first purpose of the Ten Commandments is just to make sure that we have a civil organized society now some are, some societies are more violent than others but ultimately we have a, a a moral law to govern society secondly the purpose of the law is to show us our utter need for salvation okay what does paul say in romans 7 7 what then shall we say that the law is sin by no means yet if it had not been for the law I would have not known sin. I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall covet. So what's the purpose of the Ten Commandments? To show us that we are sinners. So let me ask you a question. You guys have probably listened to the way of the master. You've been around long enough, this church, to know that. You go up to a person that was without Jesus and you say to them, let me ask you a question. Do you consider yourself to be a good person? And, and I've done this a lot. Most people will be like, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. Okay, you're a, great, you're a good person. Let's, let's just kind of take a test here to see how good you are. Um, let me ask you a question. Um, how many lies have you ever committed in your life? And they're like, oh, man, um, I probably can't count. Probably a million. Okay. What do you call a person who lies? What are they called? A liar. Okay, so you've just admitted that you're a liar. Oh, Okay. Have you ever stolen anything before? The Bible says, thou shalt not steal. Well, I may have stolen a paper clip at work, or I may have stolen cookies from the candy jar. Okay, that's still stealing. You took something that wasn't yours. What do you call someone that steals? A thief. And they're like, ooh, 
a liar, a thief. Okay, here's another one. Have you ever um, used the Lord's name in vain? Have you ever used the Lord's name as a cuss word? Well, I probably have. Um, and then they like blurt it out. And like, yeah, that's <laughs> and, <clears throat> okay. That's blasphemy. That's a really bad. That's a really so. So you've already admitted that you're a liar, you're a thief, and you're a blasphemer. Let me ask you another question. Have you ever committed adultery? Oh no, I'd never. I'd never cheat on my wife or my husband. Okay. Jesus said, if you look at another person to lust after them, it's as if you've committed it in your heart. So have you ever lusted after anybody? Well, yeah, I'm a red-blooded American male. You know, I ha- okay. So you've committed adultery in your heart. Okay, that's just four of the Ten Commandments. And by your own admission, you've just told me. I haven't told you anything you haven't already told me. You've admitted yourself that you are a liar, a thief, a blasphemer, and an adulterer at heart. And if God were to judge you based upon the Ten Commandments, would you be innocent or guilty? And they usually would say, probably guilty. Okay, would you go to heaven or would you go to hell? This is where it hinges sometimes. Sometimes people will say, well... Some people, if they're really broken, if the, if, the, if the law has done its work, that's the purpose of the law there. What's the law doing there? The law is being serviced as a mirror in front of them to show them that they are guilty. They can't save themselves. They're guilty. A lot of times people will say, I guess I would go to hell. And I'd say something like, does that concern you? Yes. And then I go in to present the gospel. Other times people will say, well, God's a forgiving God. I'm sure he'll forgive me. And I'll be like, okay, let's take this into a court of law. You are at your house one night, a robber breaks in, murders your wife and your children, steals all of your money, goes on trial for murder, for all this stuff. There's a smoking gun that has his fingerprints. You had surveillance footage in your house. There's no doubt that he is guilty. You are sitting there with your child that survived. Your husband has been murdered. Your other son has been murdered. The judge stands up to give the the, the verdict to this killer, and the judge asks the, the murderer to stand up, come to the bench and says, all right, I know that you, um, you know, really didn't mean to do that. I know that I'm supposed to be a forgiving judge. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a $5 fine and I'm going to slap you on the wrist and go along your merry way. What would we say to that? Has justice been served? No. In our American court of law, just intrinsically, we want there to be justice right. So if, if we want justice for a crime that's been committed, don't you think the God of the universe has the right to execute justice? Is he just going to forgive without exacting a payment? And the problem is most people will be like, well, that's murder. You know, that's a really big deal. Well, then you need to go back to law and say, you know what? It is a big deal. Your sin is an offense to God. And so the purpose of the law in a, in a lost person's life is really to show them, it's really to shatter them. I hate to use that word, to crush them, to shatter them, to convict them. They are to be such under the weight of the law that they realize I'm helpless, I'm hopeless. If I were to stand before God in this state, I would be utterly lost and I need a Savior. Okay? And then you go in, the law has done its work, then you go in and you you present the gospel. You you present the good news. Okay, here's the bad news. You're a sinner, you're under God's wrath, you've broken his law, but here's the good news. You know, Jesus died on the cross, he died as a sacrificial substitute, he took the wrath of God, he rose again, you can be forgiven, your sin can be paid for, all all that kind of stuff, okay? Okay, so that's for a non-Christian, okay? The first one is just for society in general, to make society, the first use of the, of the law is to make society better. The second use of the law is for the, the, the lost person, the sinner, to be overwhelmed by the burden of their sin. To, and that's what Paul says. Paul says, I would not have known what coveting was if the law hadn't told me, thou shalt not covet. 
So the law tells me that I'm a sinner. And it's supposed to lead me to Christ. Um, I think I have another passage of Scripture on there, don't I? Yeah, the Galatians one. Galatians 3, 23 through 24. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law and prisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Let me, let me tell you what that word guardian. Some translations use the word schoolmaster. Um, it's the word we get the word pedagogical from. It's pedagogue. It's a, it's a trainer. It's a tutor. And so the purpose of the law was like a tutor or a trainer or a schoolmaster to what? To lead you to, to Christ. Okay? Now, what's the third use of the law? This is for believers. Okay? First of all, it was for society in general. Secondly, it's for lost people. <clears throat> Thirdly, now, how do we as believers who've been saved by grace through the power of the gospel, how do we relate to the law? It's still a standard of living. It still is our standard for, for behavior. Does Paul say, <clears throat> excuse me, in Romans 6, I'll give a loose paraphrase. Should we keep on sinning so that grace may abound more? He's no. So just because we come, because when you become a Christian, do we just throw the law out the window and say, well, that was the Old Testament. I don't have to worry about that anymore. No, we still have to obey the law, but why do we obey it? Because God has saved us and given us the power to do it. And so here's my question up there. Do we obey in order to win God's approval or do we obey as a result of God's approval for us in Christ? See, a lot of Christians think that I need to obey God in order to win brownie points with Him. And it's this works-based, very works-righteousness, I just got to keep doing good in order for God to love me as a Christian. Wrong. God loves you in Christ because of the gospel, and because of that love, then you're motivated to, to obey because you want to. Does that make sense? So we don't just throw the law out and say, oh, it's no, no longer around. Yeah, we still <clears throat> have to obey the commands of Scripture, we just now have two things that we didn't have before. What two things did we not have before as a non-believer? Where's my pen? Two things. When you, when, before you were a Christian, you lacked, you lacked these two things. And then through the power of the Holy Spirit, when God regenerated you, you got these two things. The first one was the ability. You lack the ability to obey. Or please God. You didn't have the power to do it. Why? Because you don't have the Holy Spirit in you. I mean, you could try all you want to be good, but ultimately to please God, you cannot do that as an unregenerate person. So you lack the ability. What happens when the Holy Spirit causes you to be born again? You become converted. What does He give you? You now have the ability. What did you not have before? You didn't have the desire to do it. I don't really care. I don't want to do this. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I want to do what's socially acceptable. I, I have somewhat of a conscience. I want to do good. But ultimately, was your ultimate desire to obey and please God as a lost person? No. When the Holy Spirit came and caused you to be born again and you were converted, what did God give you? He gave you the desire. So now as a believer in Christ, as a regenerate, born again, converted, authentic, whatever you want to call it, believer, you now have the ability and the desire to please God. Okay? I think I'm going to stop there 
because we're going to move into the tabernacle and that's going to take some time. Do we have any final questions or comments related to what we've been talking about tonight? Law, gospel, Passover? Yeah. Yes, Tyler. As far as for a for a lost person or for a. Well, you, you were saying that we need to have the gospel first before the law. But I'm, I guess I'm not seeing how that. I mean, I'm just struggling. Are you explaining that one more? We need to have the gospel. Yeah, you said it. I mean, you're saying. For a believer. Yeah. 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 As a, as a, as a believer. If you if you're told first as a Christian that you got to do all these things, it's going to lead you to think that somehow you can do them in your own power if you're not reminded of first of all what God has done for you in the gospel. Now, for a lost person, what I just said, a lost person probably needs to have the law given to them first before the gospel. Is that kind of the confusion there? I think you. I think you always. I think you always want to live in the gospel. It's hard. Yeah. Well, and what? If, yeah. Yeah. One of the things. One of the. Yeah. Well, let me. Yeah, let me. There's a really great book that the men are doing on Tuesday mornings called "Note to Self." Um, it's a really great book. It's called "Note to Self" by Joe Thorne, and it's got these little like one pair, one page chapters, and it's like a sticky note to yourself, and it's to remind you of the gospel and all these different areas in your life. Like, who's in my Tuesday? Nobody's here in my Tuesday morning men's that can talk about it. Um, too bad. Um, one of the things that that it teaches you to do is to preach the gospel to yourself on a daily basis. And so what I think you need to do and what I do in my prayer time is that you've got to remind yourself first of what Christ has done, who you are in Christ, what what God, what there's no condemnation for me in Christ, all the blessings of the gospel. And then when you start there and think about that and have that filling your thoughts, then you realize that okay, my motivation to go out and obey comes from who I am in Christ. If I sit here and think I've got to do all these things to somehow be right or I'm worried if I've done these things, you're focusing first, not that you shouldn't do those things, but you're focusing first on what you've got to do as opposed to what Christ has already done. I don't know if that if that helps. Don? I think that is kind of maybe like your sanctification because I always, always go back to Philippians 1.6 because I think if you have the desire to even do anything good today that came from Christ working in you and we are not finished with our our sanctification so the fact that I stumbled in that just shows that I'm not done yet 
So hinging it all in that Christ has promised to mm -hmm. work out my salvation in me. So if I got up today and said, hey, I want to glorify God and what I do at work, and I go there, that de that desire came from the gospel and that Christ has already done that saving work in my heart. The fact that it didn't glorify him and everything I did today just shows that I have not been finished. I'm still on that road of sanctification. And I think that and getting those two things that I am resting securely in the fact that I am saved in Christ and the fact that I got up today, read anything in the scriptures or I had any thoughts that were towards God, that is proof that I'm saved and I can rest in that and that, yes, I'm still going to stumble. It's right, and, and then not getting so beat up because I do the same thing to myself. It's like, man, I still don't witness to people like I know I should. And am I really even a believer? You know, I struggle with that sometimes. But then the Lord reminds me, you're just not done yet. And the fact that you've been able to do anything is proof that you are his because you wouldn't apart from him you couldn't have done it right at all. and the very fact that you um or when you fail and don't do right you there's still forgiveness and god doesn't love you less because you failed or he doesn't love you more because you did better he he loves you securely in christ and here's the evidence that you're a christian if you weren't bothered by those things it's probably evidence you're not a christian because a, a non-christian if they don't care do they they might care for a little bit, but at the heart of your hearts, if you don't obey Jesus, it's going to bother you. It's going to gnaw at you, and it's probably evidence. And Paul, like you said in Romans 7, Paul says, I don't understand what I do. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. I find this, this, this law at work within me. You know, who's going to save me? Wretched man that I am. Thanks be to God, he delivers me. And so um, I don't know if that's been helpful, Tyler, if that's been more confusing. Well, yeah. Yeah, and I think. Right. Well, I think it goes back to a few weeks ago, and I know you weren't here when we talked about the difference between sanctification and justification. If you get those two confused, then if you operate, if you operate your Christian life on the basis of your growth, you're operating on the wrong foundation. If you operate in your Christian life out of justification, you're standing as being not guilty, you're operating out of the right thing. <clears throat> so we, we believe first who we are in Christ. We're not guilty. We're blessed. One, one of the things that would be really good, just turn to Titus real quick. And we've got like two minutes, but this is a good exercise to preach the gospel to yourself. Just in a short, I call this a gospel in a nutshell. If you go to Titus, it's after 2 Timothy, before Philemon. Just take these, like Titus chapter 3, um, verses 4 through 7, and just meditate on all these things that, that the Bible says is true about you if you're saved. Let me just read this. 
and, and I'll, and I'll kind of maybe walk through how you could preach the gospel to yourself. And, and when I say preach the gospel to yourself, I don't mean you stand up in the morning in front of the mirror behind the pulpit and start spitting on people. I mean, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about in your prayer life, in your daily, you know, just reminding yourself um, of what the gospel is. But Titus 3, 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I mean, you can stop and say, verse 4, man, I am a recipient of the goodness and loving kindness of God. I am a recipient of His goodness. Verse 5, He saved me. Not as well anything I did, but it was by His own mercy. I'm a recipient of mercy. He washed me. He regenerated me. He renewed me. He gave me the gift of the Holy Spirit. He poured out His Holy Spirit on me richly. He justified me by grace. I have eternal life. I mean, there's like six or seven things there that are true of a believer that if you just sit and believe that and think upon that and meditate and say, these are true whether I feel like it or not because the Bible says they're true of me. Through that, I can go out in the confidence to know that I can glorify God because He started the work in me, and when I fail, am I, am, I, am I no longer washed or regenerated or justified? No, I'm still accepted by God. It doesn't give me an excuse to go out and fail, but it, but it, it centers me in the fact that my identity does not come in what I do. My identity comes in what Christ has done for me and who I am in Him. And so any success I have in the Christian life when I lay my head on my pillow at night is because He, Philippians 1, 6, He who began a good work in me will carry it on to completion. He gets all the credit. We probably need to stop there because I'm going to continue going. So... Um, we will get through Exodus, guys. I'm not sure where we're going to end up at the end of this class. We've, we're going um, at a good little pace here, but um, yeah, let me pray for us and then we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the picture in Exodus of, of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Jesus, that you took the wrath of God and you covered us and you substituted yourself for us that we might be freed. And that, Lord Jesus, um, help us to, to always remember just who we are in Christ, that we're not guilty. We're saved, we're regenerated, we're washed, we're sanctified, we're justified, we have eternal life. Um, there's, um, there's no condemnation, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And let that be the fuel to motivate us to go out and live lives that glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys.